Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thank you for joining me here. I know you have innumerable podcast options that could occupy your time, way too many, in fact. I think I was the last adult in America to launch a podcast. I held out as long as I could, but eventually I had to get with the program. And so here I am. And here you are. And I'm honored to have you here. So let's get started. Prior to moving to the Los Angeles area 25 years ago, my God, has it been that long? Believe me, I never intended to still be here after 25 years. Anyway, prior to moving to L.A., I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for over 20 years, most of that in San Francisco itself. I'm thankful that I got out of there long before it turned into the hellhole of crime, drug addiction, and homelessness that it has infamously become. And I've been shaking my head over the news of the upscale Nordstrom store in San Francisco closing after being in operation for over 35 years, a 312,000-square-foot, five-story department store in the Westfield Shopping Mall. A spokesman said that, quote, the dynamics of the downtown San Francisco market have changed dramatically over the past several years, impacting customer foot traffic to our stores and our ability to operate successfully, unquote. Um, Yes, that is certainly a very delicate way to put it. The dynamics have changed dramatically. And by the word dynamics, they're euphemistically referring to the out-of-control lawlessness in Democrat-run San Francisco, the unchecked shoplifting that is plaguing so many stores in the People's Republic of California and in other major urban areas all run by Democrats. Walmart, Macy's, Walgreens, Best Buy... Bed Bath & Beyond, Target, all these major chains and independent stores that have been shuttering across the country in Democrat-led areas because crime has become such an overwhelming problem. I keep emphasizing that these areas are Democrat-run because it is Democrat policies that have directly led to this deterioration into barbarism of our inner cities. These are policies that could legitimately be called pro-crime, not soft on crime, not lenient, not criminal reform, but pro-crime policies that have not simply enabled, but encouraged rampant mob lawlessness. This is the party, remember, that calls for defunding the police, that institutes pro-crime attorneys general, that abolishes cash, cash bail, that wants to free felons from prison, that demonizes law enforcement, that tells officers to stand down while Black Lives Matter riots and Antifa assaults citizens in broad daylight, and on and on. Pro-crime. This devolution of law and order is intentional on the part of Democrats, who, as part of the tearing down of this country, have sought to drive a stake straight through the heart of the middle class, not only by instituting economically devastating policies, called Bidenomics, but by creating an environment of uncontrolled chaos in our cities. The result is a hemorrhaging of people and businesses from blue cities and blue states as those people and business owners realize that normal life under Democrat leadership has become untenable. And I use the word untenable intentionally, and I'll explain why in just a moment. It's a new kind of flight from the cities 
that is reminiscent of the white flight of the 1960s and 70s, a sociological phenomenon that the left likes to dismiss as white racism. But what is the truth about white flight? Prominent figures on the left, like Michelle Obama, have commented upon it recently in ways that perpetuate this simplistic narrative because it bolsters their insistence that America is systemically racist and that white people are inherently racist. Wikipedia, which is run and moderated by left-wing political activists, describes white flight very misleadingly as, quote, the sudden or gradual large-scale migration of white people from areas becoming more racially or ethno-culturally diverse, unquote. The suggestion here is that white people would rather pack up and flee the homes and states they lived in than live next door to a black person. You know that old line, well, there goes the neighborhood, when a non-white family moved in. That's how the left wants you to think about white flight, that white racism is the problem and the explanation. But what is the truth? Yes, the narrative that has been pushed for decades by the left-leaning media and race-hustling activists and politicians is that white flight occurred quite simply because whites are racist. Funny how you never hear the side of the story from the white people who participated in that flight. Left-leaning historians and political pundits don't ever bother to actually interview those people about it because that would complicate the narrative. That might put to the lie the narrative that America is systemically racist and that white people are inherently racist. Well, today... At the Right Take Podcast, I'm going to speak with a journalist who did the work that those propagandists failed to do. In his brand new book called Untenable, which is why I pointedly used that word a moment ago, he tells the truth about white flight from the perspective no one wants to hear. That book is based upon his own personal experience growing up in Newark, New Jersey, and on many dozens of interviews of people, both white and black, who spoke about white flight from the perspective of their own lived experience. So please stay with us because you do not want to miss this discussion. I think you'll find it fascinating because it's not a perspective you're likely to hear anywhere else. So stay tuned. And don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so that you don't miss any of the conversations we're having here. Remember, if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It really helps. We'll be right back with my guest after this awesome musical interlude. Don't touch that dial. guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is Jack Cashel, a journalist and author of at least 15 nonfiction books, including, I think, three about Barack Obama. He's written for Fortune, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Weekly Standard, a lot of other places. He's taught media and literature at Purdue and other universities. I think a lot of people may not know that he's also a documentary filmmaker, but most recently he's the author of a brand new book called Untenable the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. And we are going to talk about that and some other things today. Jack Cashel, welcome to the Right Take podcast. Hey, Mark, uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Jack, before we get into the meat and the substance of your new book, Untenable, let's talk about the reaction it's getting and a controversy that may be developing around it. As I understand it, you were scheduled to speak recently at a New York State library about the book, but you were then, quote unquote, uninvited by the state library board because they claimed that they were, quote, unprepared to handle violent situations, unquote. Can you give us the backstory on that in a little more detail as to why they supposedly feared that your presence and a discussion of the book would spark some violence? 
Well, yeah, this is pure uh, trickle-down cancel culture, Mark. Uh, you know, the irony is uh, is the town in question is a re- has a Republican mayor in a county that gave Trump a 20-point margin of victory. And yet the library board felt free to, their phrase was to, quote, disinvite me, you know, having invited me to speak on my book, Untenable. And Untenable is in large part a memoir. And it's not overly controversial, other than the fact that it has the word white on the cover and, and it also says true, which suggests that the story I'm telling in Untenable may uh, reveal that the story that these people have been telling each other is untrue. But this being a small town, and I, I've been spending my summers here for the last 35 years, my wife is a donor to the library. Uh, I, I got all the documentation on it. And it's just, what it shows is just how banal woke culture can be, you know? I mean, I know it's Hannah Arendt said the banality of evil in reference, I think, to Adolf Eichmann. It's not that level of evil, obviously, but it is that level of banality. <laughs> I know you've written elsewhere that libraries are kind of notoriously hostile to unorthodox or unpopular ideas, at least when those ideas come from the right, which is absolutely correct. I mean, it's unthinkable that the New York public library system would disinvite, for example, Ibram X. Kendi or uh, Robin D'Angelo, the the anti-racism authors. Um, But you and your book somehow represent a threat. I understand that one board member said, we haven't silenced him, we have uninvited him. Um, and another, and, and they suggested kind of insultingly that I think you use the gazebo in the park next door. Uh, is that right? That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, my wife went to the uh, library board. I was out of town, but she went to the library board meeting and recorded it. And it's, it's a, a wonderland of Orwellian doublethink and, uh, and, and excuse making. When you, when you the, the way the left cancels the right typically is simply not to invite you someplace and no one notices that you're not invited. But when they invite you, announce that you're coming, right? And then they disinvite you, it's it's total egg on their face. So you listen to the school board, uh, I mean the library board trying to explain it away, and it's it's a hoot. I mean, one mark one uh, example they raised as a reason why it was necessary to disinvite me because a year ago this August, um, Salman Rushdie was attacked at the Chautauqua Institute. And we're in Chautauqua County. We're about 20 miles away. Uh, and they feared that a, in their explanation, that uh, an incident like this would take place if I were to speak. Even though they admitted in a, in a memo to my wife that all the protesters were females, Right. Oddly, the guy says, oddly, all the complainants were females. Oddly, no, inevitably. They're called Karens for a reason, right? And these aren't Antifa females. These are, you know, middle-aged biddies with too much time on their head. Uh, okay, about the book itself, this, this is obviously a very personal book for you. It's a memoir, as you put it. Uh, it stems from your own upbringing as a lower-middle-class white boy growing up around blacks in uh, Newark, New Jersey. By the way, did I say that correctly? Newark. I know it's supposed to be just one syllable, right? One syllable. It's a, say it as you would cork or pork, and just put an n in front of it. Newark, right? No one pronounces. The only people who pronounce it right are the people who are from Newark. So it's a uh, you know. I'll have to practice that. You dedicated this book to your late father, who was a police officer, and you write at the beginning of it that 
quote, it is for his sake and the sake of all the dispossessed that I share this saga of our unwelcome diaspora, unquote. What I don't think most people think of white flight as an unwelcome diaspora. Why did you write this book about the white flight from America's cities? Let's start with that. Well, first of all, uh, Mark, I, I, uh, I, I've been watching this over the years. It, it bothered me from the time I was an adolescent. The way the media covered our situation turned me from a you know young preteen for Kennedy into basically something other than a Democrat, something other than a liberal. I, I saw the way the media were treating um, people in our circumstance. So on TV, for instance, they gave us Archie Bunker, right? Which, if you're Norman Lear sitting in Brentwood, probably makes sense to you. But if you're Archie Bunker living in a city in which the violent crime rate has increased 400% in the last 20 years, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I lived in, in 1960, the year Kennedy ran, the year my whole neighborhood voted Democratic. Uh, and it's, it was basically, it was a totally Catholic neighborhood, mostly Irish and Italian. The, it was an idyllic neighborhood. I, that was the word that so many of the people I spoke to used to describe it, idyllic. It was a working class neighborhood, it was virtually all, all my friends were renters. Uh, most of the people were in our neighborhood. My fa our parents, my father bought a 1880 fixer upper on the GI Bill. And uh, we were the only homeowners that I knew. So the, the notion of blockbusting made no sense to describe what happened in our neighborhood. Nor did the schools make any sense because virtually all of us went to Catholic schools. They were great. We loved them. We had two movie theaters within two blocks. We had every kind of ethnic food within two blocks. We had every kind of service within two blocks. You know, mom and pop, this and that. Uh, a diner, uh, you know, a candy store, a soda fountain. I mean, everything that a little kid or any adult would want. I didn't learn to ride a bicycle till I was 30, you know, because I never had the need. Uh, and it was very, you know, uh, collegial, harmonious neighborhood where, in the absence of backyards, everyone's set out front on their stoops to their porches. And so it was very communal. Uh, and by 1970, that was all gone. And what happened in that period? What happened in the 60s in Newark and uh, similar communities around the country? And I'm talking about prior to the 1967 riots that you addressed near the end of the book, which I'll ask you about in a moment. But uh, what happened to change things? You know, uh, Mark, the... It had been brewing for some time. The problem started, I, you know, I, it's easy to pay, pin this all on LBJ, although he institutionalized much of the problems. Uh, I, I trace it back probably to even post-war 50s, where the, the zeitgeist changed from the understanding among the people who administered justice, who administered, you know, social work, et cetera, from uh, the notion that the individual was responsible for his own destiny to the fact, to the notion that the system is responsible. So if you don't succeed, uh, it's not your fault. You know, as, uh, you know, the song Officer Krupke in West Side Story is really parodies that nicely. And that came out in 1957. I'm sociologically disturbed, right? It's not your fault anymore. Someone's there waiting and willing to excuse you. It's, it's kind of an involved story, but when they cut off immigration from South, Southern and Eastern Europe in 1924, they did not cut off immigration from the, uh, from the South, from the Black South. And so 
And what had once been multiple streams of immigrants coming into the city, migrants, black, German, Irish, Italian, Jewish, and now is simply black. And so the poorer areas of the city and the, and the lower rungs on the ladder were now being filled by black migrants. And there became a sense of, you know, a, a growing gap between working class whites and, and, and blacks. It wasn't a gap until uh, the black population was seduced by, you know, post-war uh, welfare social programs that culminated with the Great Society in which if uh, you did not have a father in the home, a married father, you were eligible for Medicaid, you were eligible for food stamps, you were at reduced rate on your rent, you were eligible for uh, uh, just a host of benefits, including welfare itself. And, uh, and it had its impact on the, especially in the black culture instantly, immediately. And by the mid-60s, that was becoming painfully evident. You anticipated a question I was going to ask a little bit later, but I think I'll bring it up now. Can you talk about the role that the breakdown of the family and this scourge of fatherlessness has played in this whole story of, of white flight and why this huge factor has been and continues to be ignored by the media and by politicians? That's an, Mark, that's an excellent question. Uh, the, night, the U.S. Census releases its um, data 72 years after the fact. It was like it was JFK's brain or something. I don't know why, but that's what they do. So fortunately for me, the 1950 census became available in 2022 when I was doing my research. So I was able to see what my block looked like in 1950, just before we moved there, a few years before. Uh, at that time, there were 85 families on the block. 83 of them had married heads, married male heads of households. There were two widows. Of the 83, two were retired, two were unemployed, 79 had jobs. I list many of them in a book. Uh, every working class, every blue collar occupation under the sun, short of like lumberjack is, is located there. Uh, casket maker, rubber molder, vegetable huckster. I mean, you know, just... It was just a wonderland of real blue-collar work. I mean, and there wasn't a college graduate on the block, as far as I could tell. When we moved to the block in 1953, uh, the, we moved to a triplex at the top of the block. The triplex next to us was occupied by uh, three black families. So the block, and my history was always integrated. Uh, there were immigrants on my block. I'm talking now one street, two sides of the street. There was a one-block-long street called Myrtle Avenue. There were immigrants from 14 countries on the block, uh, different countries. So it was a heterodox, you know, multi-ethnic neighborhood. And it stayed stable for 10 years. No one cut and ran when the first black families moved in uh, because they loved their neighborhood, right? It was such a, a nicely harmonious, functional neighborhood. It wasn't until uh, the welfare type families began moving in in the early to mid 60s that uh, the problem began, the, the block began to deteriorate. And then on my block in particular, it took a, a real hit when the, you know, the uh, state highway department decided to put a, what would prove to be an interstate right through the middle of our block, which took my house. And that totally accelerated the decline of the neighborhood, as you can imagine. And uh, it was never the same after that. And you're right, there are thousands of neighborhoods like it all across America. The ethnic composition was, would be different. But I talk about neighborhoods in Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, you know, um, all the way to Los Angeles even. 
that's experienced the same phenomenon, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but inevitably. You just anticipated another question of mine that I think I'll just go ahead and insert here. Uh, when you mentioned the highway, what about this notion that's taken pretty much as gospel among the anti-racist crowd that urban planters across America consciously used highways to divide white and black neighborhoods. I think, uh, you know, even uh, Pete Buttigieg, the uh, transportation secretary, diversity hire, he he said something along those lines back in uh, November of 2021, namely that America built its highways on, as you put it, a bedrock of hate. Is there any truth to that? No, I mean, some, there are half truths that I dispel in the course of this book, but this is a a hundred percent non-truth. Uh, Highway planners just built their highways wherever they felt like building them. In Newark, they put two interstates through Newark. One went through the heart of our Irish-Italian neighborhood, and the other went through the heart of the the Jewish neighborhood. In neither case, and at that time, Newark was 35% black. If they wanted to do some dividing, they weren't very good shots. I mean, they missed, you know, their aim was off. Uh, Then I looked around the country to see if I could find any place where there was a highway that was consciously planned to divide white from black. I could not. And I could, it's hard to find a, one where even unconsciously it ended up doing that. Um, so the first highway under Buttigieg's um, plan to de, you know, racify the highways was a, a highway that was built right through the heart of a, of a black Detroit neighborhood. It wasn't done to divide. It was just done because that's where they wanted to put it, you know. Our neighborhood went because, you know, we were working class people. We didn't have much, pro- you know, voice to protest. Uh, it wouldn't have cost that much. You know, it's cheaper. You know, our our house was sold for, they paid us $7,000 for our house. So I stayed, stayed a lot of money by taking down $7,000 houses instead of $20,000 houses or whatever. So they, they were just relentless. But like, not just with the highway people, but in the 50s and 60s, the uh, urban developers were just reckless and indifferent to the lives they were uprooting and the neighborhoods they were displacing. And about the uh, the deterioration of those neighborhoods, you write near the beginning of the book uh, that you asked a lifelong friend who happened to be a loyal Democrat, as you note, why in the early 70s he and, he and his widowed mother left the street that you both grew up on 20 years after the first black families moved in, you write that he searched for a little bit for the right words and then said simply, well, it became untenable. What exactly did he mean by that? And why did you latch onto that word as the title of your book? Well, you know, my, uh, Mark, my original title was to be dispossessed. And then the subtitle was the untold stories of, of America's great ethnic diaspora. My real goal was to talk about the people who were dispossessed, who had to leave these neighborhoods under duress. Um, but I, that when I, when I walked that title by people, they were like, huh? What are you talking about? This was asked. You know, I had too much explaining. So I was looking for a new title. And I'm talking to my friend, Artie. And you're right. He's among the, my friends who left that neighborhood. He's the only one that I know remained a Democrat because the process alerted us to the ravages that the Democratic Party was wrecking on blue-collar America and the indifference they felt towards doing it. And, but he, he's remained a Democrat, partly for union reasons. His wife is pretty woke. She was kind of hovering in the background. He was trying to be, you know, uh, appropriate. And he said, yeah, I said it became untenable. 
And I said, Artie, what do you mean by untenable? And he said, well, Jack, when your mother gets mugged for the second time, that's untenable. When your home gets invaded for the second time, that's untenable. And as soon as I heard that word, I said, bingo. Because Artie's story, by a million, is the story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. And what about, in terms of being mugged, what about the first time you were officially mugged? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I have an advantage over other people in that my mugging, my first mugging, official mugging, made the Newark Evening News. Uh, And it's a classic story of just the way our neighborhood was starting to turn. I was nine years old at the time. And I was, uh, my mother sent me to the local grocer to buy something. She gave me a $5 bill, which is like, you know, in our world, it was like giving me uh, the keys to Fort Knox, you know. And I remember very distinctly, I had $3 in change. I stuck it in my back pocket. I didn't have a wallet. I didn't have keys. I didn't have keys till I started college. I didn't have a wallet till I started college. And uh, so I'm walking home and then I feel a, a pair of hands come over my eyes. And I could sense that it was a black person. And I said, hey, Earl, I have a, my black friend in our little group on the, on the block. And then when I felt the hands rifling through my pockets, I knew it wasn't Earl. And uh, before I could even figure out what was going on, the money was gone. I turn around and I see these three black kids running away. They're, you know, they're a few years older than I was, I could tell. I wasn't going to go chase them. So I'm half a block from my home. I walk home and... Uh, I'm more anxious about telling my mother about losing three bucks than I was about the robbery. But I tell her, and uh, she immediately calls my father, who's a youth aid detective working in a precinct a couple blocks away. So he comes. Now, the, the scene of the crime is about 50 yards from a public school on my block. It's about half black at that time. So we go over to the school, which seems like a likely place to find the suspect. And, uh, we talked to the, uh, uh, the school principal, and uh, she said, oh, none of our boys would ever do this. Oh, that's not our boys wouldn't do this. So she suggested we go to South H Street School. It was about a mile away when it's like 90% black. Well, no, my father said, ma'am, we're, you know, stones throw from the crime scene. This is probably the place. So uh, I only saw these guys from the back, which made it difficult. And my father's a little skeptical, and my mother was, about whether I'd actually been robbed. So we go class to class. And then finally, in the last classroom, usually embarrassing, this kid pulls a book up in front of his face. And and I've watched enough Dragnet to see the uh, signs. I said, Dad, that must be one of the guys. And uh, he jumps up and he says, I didn't take that boy's $3. <laughs> you know, my father said, son, we got some talking to do in that office. He rats out his two buddies. And, you know, justice is served. Uh, as, but as we're walking away uh, from the, uh, I remember this distinctly because my father never was not a kind of person to make ethnic comments, especially about Jews. And first of all, since there were very few Jews in our neighborhood, everyone got along pretty well. And he said, the trouble with Jews is they think blacks can do no wrong. You know, oh, he said colors. He said colors can do no wrong. Well, I never, I didn't know the principal was Jewish. I wasn't savvy to that. And that's partly why I talk about, use the word ethnic in the title, because every group in Newark and throughout the country, ethnic group, responded differently 
to uh, black in migration into the cities. The, the group that was ethnic group that was most welcoming uh, were Jews. And, uh, you know, they're most liberal and most accepting. And yet, ironically, they were the first and quickest to leave uh, because but for one good reason, and that is they, unlike uh, Irish and Italians and Croats, Poles, they depended on public schools and they had high expectations for those schools. And once those expectations could not be met, they felt like they had no choice but to leave. And they did. So uh, the Italians, on the other hand, uh, you know, you get called a racist if you leave, you get called a racist if you stay. The Italians were the most coherent uh, and the toughest of all the white ethnics. And they didn't want, they weren't going to leave. You know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to drag them out of the neighborhood. And they fought back. And for that, they, of course, were called racist. So it didn't really matter uh, how you responded. You were going to racist in the, in the end, anyhow. When you uh, hear the term white privilege, what does that mean to you and to other whites who grew up when and where you did and in similar communities? It's sort of like a, yeah, I hear the white, the word white privilege, like a punchline to a joke. I mean, it's, they, and I was involved in a debate on reparations earlier this summer uh, in which the people on the other side of the debate were, were ludicrous. I mean, just flat out, they had no idea what it was like growing up white. And that's part of the reason I tell the story of my neighborhood you know, before uh, we came of age, most of our, you know, as I said, every one of my childhood friends had a living relative who was born in a foreign country. And so we all heard ancestral stories. My family is Irish, by and large. Uh, there was a lot of mixing by this time. I, I was one quarter German. Uh, my uh, one grandmother was German. She grew up a couple blocks from a woman named Catherine Schaub. Catherine Schaub, uh, in 19... I believe the year was 1917, as a 15-year-old, immigrant kids didn't go to high school. You know, they just went to eighth grade, and then they went to the workforce. That's what privilege was like it, as, as late as 1920 or so. Uh, my grandmother married young, my William Cashel, my grandfather. But Catherine Schaub got a great job at the local radium uh, lithograph, uh, I think it was a radium factory. And she got invited her cousin and some friends, and they went to work there. All they had to do was paint, paint paintbrushes with radium and put them on dial handles. Well, within a few years, virtually all of them were dead. Uh, that was not what white privilege, that was what white privilege was really like circa 1920. Um, and there was an excellent book written about these girls called The Radium Girls. And it, it took place right in my neighborhood. The, the factory was you know, a couple blocks from my house. And it just added a poignancy to their story, but they all, you know, neither my mother or her brother went to high school. You know, my father went to a Votech high school. Um, and that was, they, they had no accumulated wealth. They were all renters. They didn't have any kind of backlog of, you know, residual, you know, bond payments coming in or, um, uh, no one in my world saved for college. You know, the guys I talked to, in my generation, out of my high school, out of my grade school, I should say, only two of us went right from high school to college. <clears throat> Me and a, a, a black friend of mine. Everyone else went 
and I talked to at least 20 guys who fit this description, high school, army, uh, a lot of them went to Vietnam. Some of them didn't come back. Uh, job, college patched around a job. And, and then now they can't live in Newark anymore. So they're forced to live in the nearest suburbs they can afford. Many of them moved to Ocean County, New Jersey, which sounds nicer than it is. But these are, you know, uh, like ramshackle suburbs being carved out of the pine land, pine barrens, you know, just slapdash thrown together. Uh, and they're 50 or 60 miles from Newark. People make these heroic commutes. And as a result of this, by the way, I should say, in a blue state like Ocean County, I'm like New Jersey, uh, Ocean County votes two to one Trump. And it's for that reason. So many of these people turn party uh, allegiances. Their families were all Democrats. They all end up Republicans. And the political scientists don't talk about this phenomenon because they don't want to talk about what really happened to the cities. I think your book has to be the only one that I'm aware of that addresses the whole issue of white flight from the perspective of the whites who lived through it themselves. I think the general attitude is the one reflected in something that Michelle Obama said uh, a couple of years ago, and you even quoted in the book when she was making a speech of some sort. Um, and she blamed it on white racism. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that quote? Uh, and yes, and, and how that reflects the general attitude. About yeah, the, white the quote is, it was insulting. And this quote, Michelle's quote was insulting for several reasons. One is that she, you know, she says, uh, you left because of the color of our skin and the texture of our hair. Nice, respectable families like ours. You know, first time you see them, you run. And then she turns to her audience, which is largely white and liberal female, and says, and you all still run it, right? Well, here's where the irony comes in, Mark is that Michelle has had very good parents, uh, Marion and Fraser Robinson. Fraser was a precinct captain in the, in, in the uh, daily machine, and he had a, a front job as some sort of water you know, engineer or something. But uh, they lived, they moved into, in 1950, a brand new co-op. It was, uh, I think, not exclusively black, but uh, it might as well have been de facto all black. And it was such a marvel of modern technology that both U.S. senators from Illinois attended the opening. By 1970, Parkway Gardens was untenable uh, because they had built public housing projects around it. And so when Michelle's brother Craig started school, brand new school, block away, after his first two years there, Michelle's mother, Marion, said, uh-uh. So what she did is she took... Young Michelle was about ready to start school and, and Craig and drove them 15 minutes each way to a transitional Jewish black neighborhood, uh, which was a classy misdemeanor. And they would have had to repay the school district if they had been caught. So once there, uh, they go to the local public school, which is by the time they start and they move to the neighborhood a couple of years later, it's almost entirely black again. The Jews have left and but the school still has a reputation for excellence, which is no longer deserved. But uh, so when it comes time for high school, rather than send Michelle and Craig to the public high school a block or two away, all black or close to all black, they send Craig to a Catholic high school that's virtually all white, even though the Robinsons aren't Catholic. And Marion has to take a job to pay for that. And then they send Michelle to a magnet school, which is mostly non-black uh, downtown, 
and uh, it's more than an hour away. So she's been running from blacks her whole life. I mean, Martha's Vineyard doesn't get much further, you know, much farther from a black neighborhood than that. I don't know. I, oh, and I know. I take it back. They do have some illegal immigrants living there now, so it's much uh, cozier. But no, it's insulting and totally insulting because I and in the book I cite several black families that did exactly the same thing. I use celebrity stories because they write their memoirs. Uh, the one closest to home is that of uh, Whitney Houston's mother, Sissy. And uh, Whitney Houston and I were born in the same hospital. Uh, and when I talk about institutional racism, I mentioned that by 1900, Presbyterian Hospital, where we were both born, was being praised because it had an open-door policy, people of all races, which wasn't true in lots of parts of America, like the South, et cetera. Um, so Sissy and her husband, John Houston, are living uh, in close to the Jewish neighborhoods on the other side of town. But as she said, in a cozy village, mixed-race village in the 1960s. And uh, then she said, the, but the crime and the violence started getting worse and worse. And then she said, when the 67 riots hit the city, she said, they didn't hit our neighborhood, but they got too close. And I said to John, we're out of here. So three years later, they moved to the suburbs. You know, Kanye West's mother, who grew up in, uh, Kanye grew up in Michelle's neighborhood, South Shore, Chicago. Uh, he gets mugged. He gets his bicycle stolen. His mother says, call it black flight, call it whatever. We're out of here. They moved to the suburbs. Any responsible parent under the same circumstance would have done the same thing. But only whites were singled out for blame. And that's part of what drove me to write this book. Well, that also ties in with the whole progressive narrative that whites must be the oppressor, that, uh, uh, you know, they run with this whole victimhood narrative from as early as the 1960s on in which whites are cast as the oppressor. And I think uh, Michelle Obama's quote reflects that narrative that she's trying to push, that they're trying to push. And also uh, the black author, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, who is a very highly awarded author. Uh, as you point out in the book, he wrote, quote, that white flight was not an accident. It was a triumph of racist social engineering, unquote. Uh, how radically wrong is that statement? Well, you know, it's not sociology. It's pure conspiracy theory. When you look at the motives of the people involved, speaking of banality, you know, most of the people who were doing this thought they were doing good. You know, I, in a city like Newark, though, public-private partnerships quickly devolved. Uh, and we had, a, you know, because you have this, you have the dreamers who believe that highways and and new public uh, housing projects would be a good idea, high rises, and then you have the schemers like um, the Boyardo family, who were the models for the Sopranos who come from Newark, and at least the fictional uh, Sopranos do. And for them, the idea of public-private partnership was, yeah, you uh, you you uh, dream of building this, this clearing. They cleared Little Italy in Newark. I mean, this is how uh, indifferent they were to the racial niceties. They cleared a whole thousands of of residents of a, this thriving Little Italy neighborhood in Newark, one of the most vibrant Italian neighborhoods in America. This is in 1950-53 to build a housing project. They did the white people, too. And... What would happen, though, what was accelerating that is that uh, crime families like the Boyardos in a city like Newark, seeing all this federal money coming at the city, you know, these are 90 percent federal dollars coming in. They started literally started demolition companies. Right? And then they elect a mayor 
who's in bed with him, Adnizio, who in this case would end up going to prison for a long time, uh, who gave me my Eagle Scout Award, though, uh, you know, who was taking a slice of the action. So you had a collaboration in these cities between the schemers and the dreamers that so defies the Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, you know, paradigm that it's, it makes him, if you know the real story, his, I read his stuff and I have to laugh, you know, it's just ridiculous. What, let's get to the, the 1967 Newark riots. Can you talk about the impact that had on the country, in fact, because I think a lot of people may not, a lot of people today may not remember that or know much about it. Can you describe a little bit about the riots and the impact that it had? And also maybe the role that professional agitators like Tom Hayden uh, and Saul Alinsky and Amiri Baraka, people like that, the, the role that they may have played in those riots. No, uh, Mark. Yeah, it's there were the right, Newark riots in uh, 1967, in which about 25 people died, was the first big conflagration in, in the Northeast, North Central United States. It was followed a few weeks later by the riot in Detroit, which was of comparable magnitude. Uh, and they said uh, they reverberated across the nation, even not just in Newark and Detroit, but they had put white people on edge across the nation uh, and black people as well, like um, like uh, Whitney Houston's mom, we said, "Now nah, I'm out of here." Um, the what's what I in peeling away this story, I did not know this before. When I heard the phrase "rebellion" in Newark, I said, ah, 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 yeah, just they're dressing up the word riot." But then when you look behind the scenes, in Newark was like the the Casablanca of uh, for misbegotten uh, revolutionaries all sort of coming together. Tom Hayden, who would go on to marry Jane Fonda. He was uh, the drafter of the Port Huron Statement at the Students for Democratic Society. Uh, he's white. Uh, he, he brought his whole crew to Newark. It was at least a dozen people. Uh, also in the mix were Amira Baraka, who's a homegrown radical. Uh, Leroy Jones, who is also, I mean, Leroy Jones' real name. He went by Amira Baraka as Leroy Jones. It was a well-known uh, published uh, playwright who had uh, whose movie The Dutchman was made into a, whose play The Dutchman was made into a movie, which also had guys like Ron Karenga, who's the guy who gave us Kwanzaa, right? The inventor of Kwanzaa. He was in Newark. And he would go on, be, a few years later, he would be sent to prison for kidnapping and torturing a few black women. So there's, there's the father of Kwanzaa for you. Not exactly St. Nick. And then there was... Uh, well, uh, then there'd be people passing through, like Stokely Carmichael, the guy who gave us black power. And then there was even stranger guys who, I can't remember their name I talk about. But also there was the, the deadliest mosque, uh, station, Nation of Islam mosque in the country, the Newark Mosque, who's uh, under the guidance of the orchestration of uh, uh, Farrakhan. Uh, it was the guys from Newark Mosque who uh, assassinated in 1965, uh, Malcolm X in full view of his family. So there was a, a stew of people who were consciously trying to stir up stuff. And they had his fodder for their, you know, their, uh, their explosions. The a growing number of fatherless young boys, young men in a city like Newark, by the time of the riots in 67, a full 25% of those involved were Father living in fatherless homes. In my neighborhood, which was, you know, uh, at, on the fringe of those riots, uh, the fatherless percentage was about one or two percent. 
it was so small that we knew people by, we had one guy we called Broken Home Bobby because he, he was living with his uncle, you know, and his, and his uh, aunt, you know, and his mother. Uh, that was the extent of broken homeness. In our, we didn't know that phenomenon because the Irish, Italians, and Jews were all very strong on family formation. And uh, so you have that, this, uh, you know, increasingly estranged, alienated, disaffected group of uh, young black men who are listening to the likes of Baraka and Karenga and, and uh, Farrakhan. And they're beginning to turn their anger, which is probably against their father or their mother, against being there. But you're channeling that anger, consciously conscious, channeling that anger of the broke child from a broken home away from the parents or away from, you know, uh, their family structure towards white people. And it, in the conflagration in 67 was, you know, the, there was an incident that set it off, but anything could have set it off. Same thing like with George Floyd in 2020. George Floyd could have been, you know, a hundred other incidents. Uh, let's fast forward to today a little bit. What about the flight that we are seeing today of people and companies from blue cities and blue states to red cities and red states? These Democrat-run cities are just becoming hellholes of crime and drug addiction and homelessness with no indication that their leaders intend to do anything about it. Is this a what kind of a flight is this? Is this a new kind of white flight or an extension of the old? Or is it even a white flight at all? Is it just a middle class flight of people of all colors? What, what's How does this fleeing of blue cities and blue states relate to uh, the white flight we've been talking about? You know, I, I call it white flight 2.0. Uh, the difference, and you are absolutely right, uh, it's the woke cities specifically that are hemorrhaging people. I mean, Los Angeles, New York, Washington, Chicago, uh, San Francisco. And, you know, the media will write about this, but they won't say, you know, it's the woke cities. <laughs> but you don't see Nashville on that list. You don't see Tampa on that list. You don't see Austin on that list or Dallas. Uh, and here's the difference, is that when blue-collar people were forced to flee, we never got to tell our stories. Today, the people who are fleeing are the skinny jeans lap, laptop class, you know. They're the ones who are writing the headlines and writing the stories. And so it's not white flight. There's no hint of racist motivation, even though the great majority of people leaving are white. Uh, so I've read a bunch of articles on this. They're semi-comical because they just go out of their way to almost absolve themselves of having any hint of racism in this departure. But what we're seeing is something like we saw in the 60s, which was a loosening of all social restraints. But now we're loosening on top of the loosening, right? So, the, I mean, the kind of uh, bad behavior we're seeing today, you would have gotten shot for in the 60s. You know, if you had, you know, a, like a, a huge smash and grab, there'd be dead police, people laying outside the street and the cops would be there with their guns smoking and, you know, and their cigarettes smoking too. Uh, you know, in Newark, they shot at looters, right? I mean, so you really had a, it was a different, different ball game. Uh, it is, um, a, a, like, first time was a tragedy, second time it's farce. Uh, it's be repeating itself, and, uh, God, I, I love San Francisco. I'm, you know, I, I, I went to high school in New York, love New York, um, and I can't go to those places anymore. And But I don't live there, thank God. And so, so, you know. 
And uh, and then the rest of the world, you know, I for instance, I'm right now talking to you from I have a place right in Lake Erie. I can I can't show it to you because people aren't going to see this anyhow. But I look out the window, all I see is water. Uh, this is a Trump County. I mentioned earlier, race isn't even an issue here. Crime isn't an issue. You know, your crime is like pink flamingos being stolen off someone's lawn. Uh, but uh, so the people in, in these removes, like most Republicans living in small towns and suburbs, aren't engaged in this. But they really should be, because uh, if the cities fall, the country falls. Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about the process of writing the book itself. Um, it seems that you interviewed, I don't know how many people about this, but you you, you seemed obviously um, eager to tell the stories of whites themselves involved in the white flight because no one else was writing their stories. How did you go about gathering all this information and collecting all these uh, uh, stories from the dozen, must have been dozens of people that you interviewed? Yeah, you know, the mechanics of it are uh, interesting. I was very fortunate in some ways. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm on Facebook, which was enormously helpful because my uh, grade school has an alumni association, very active on Facebook, right? And my neighborhood has a neighborhood association, and you know, which people are. And so I reached out through that looking for volunteers. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people were reluctant because, you know, they're shy and like, they they understand that there could be some blowback to a story about white flight. And, uh, but most people were very forthcoming. Then I had a few friends who intervened with their friends. And so more and more people, you know, were willing to step up. I, so I interviewed through one means or another, at least 50 people. Um, then I had, you know, my own family, uh, which was, you know, my, not just my immediate family. I have three, two brothers and a sister, uh, but my cousins and, you know, other people who were uh, involved as well. Uh, and uh, that was the start. And then I got lucky. I, I'm going to say this because, you know, I live in a, my neighborhood is a unassuming neighborhood part of Newark. It's not famous. It's not like Week Wake, which Philip Roth made famous or uh, or uh, the North, uh, the, the Little Italy North Ward, First Ward, which is, you know, famous for having, spawned about half the rock and rollers you've ever heard of, you know, like uh, Joey D and the Starlighters and Frankie Valley and whatnot. Uh, ours is just unassuming mixed ethnic neighborhood. It just so happened, though, that the Radium Girls were there, right? It just so happened that Mo Berg lived there. And Mo Berg is, uh, I, I find this story fascinating. Uh, he was, uh, uh, you probably know it, Mark. I mean, he's, uh, he was a major league baseball player. There weren't many, that many Jews in our neighborhood, but he was, his was one of them. Family was one of them. Uh, goes to Princeton University, then Columbia University Law School. Uh, brilliant guy, the smartest guy in Major League Baseball. Sticks around for 18 years, largely because everyone liked him as a teammate. You know, not because he never started. He was backup most of his career. But he was a smart guy. He spoke a half dozen languages. He goes into the OSS during uh, World War II, which was the predecessor to CIA, and his uh, job is to uh, lure uh, physicists out of Europe and bring them back to the United States. And uh, top on his list was, uh, what's his name? Heisenberg, who was the Breaking Bad's alias and the, and the uh, Walter White's alias, was high, uh, for those people who watch Breaking Bad. And then he comes back to our neighbor, Newark, and he's living a couple blocks from my house. 
he's walking around the neighborhood all the time, hanging out at places I we hung out at. And I just didn't know who he was. I'm sure I passed him a hundred times. And he has kind of a breakdown, like a many returning veterans and ends up getting mugged just like everyone else and uh, living this sad, dispirited life. His brother, who he lived with, Sam, was like a doctor. He lived, you know, his office was a couple blocks from the house. And fortunately, he took 2,700 photos of the neighborhood and they're available at the Newark Library. So I just found myself with one resource after another that I didn't expect. And then the 1950 census comes out. And uh, then I start finding these unpublished, I should say self-published books that aren't in wide circulation. Like this one black fellow who wrote a book on growing up in Columbus Homes, which was priceless, more honest and forthright than just about any sociology book I ever read. Books by firemen, cops, you know, uh, that were self-published and, you know, maybe a hundred people read in their lifetime. But there, there were a goldmine of uh, information. So the, you put this all together uh, and, you know, I have my own memories and those of my family. And, uh, you know, I will say this, my, my brother, my Irish twin, uh, who professes to be a liberal, loved the book. <laughs> you know? He said, no, you're absolutely right. He had nothing to complain about. And nor, nor did he fact check me. He said, no, he's, he said, no, you, you didn't make anything up. Now, unlike Barack Obama, there are no composites in my book. I talk about, I change names occasionally to protect people, but these are real people who've lived real lives. Well, it makes for compelling storytelling and compelling reading for a nonfiction book. Um, are you working on anything new now? What's, uh, what are you working on? Or are you just still in the process of recovering from finishing this one? You know, right now I'm in the, sort of the marketing phase on this one. And I'm, I do a lot of, uh, what's the word? I, someplace between editing and ghostwriting, right? Mark, I've done about 30 books for other people, most of whom you've heard of. Uh, and I, I prefer to call it editing because it's ghostwriting. I, 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 don't, I never put my name on a book, even in the acknowledgement section. Uh, and it's like a lot of book doctoring. But I, uh, you know, I just think about this today. You know, the next project I'd like to do is, and I know Julie Kelly owns this world, but I'd really like to get into January 6th. You know, on the on the individual storytelling level, um, I just wrote an article, for instance, about a kid from I live in Kansas City now, who's a college kid in Kansas City, and uh, goes to the events on January sixes. His name's Angelo Pacheco, Hispanic kid. He's like jockey size; he can't be more than five two, hundred ten pounds, whatever. And I read the FBI report. It's pathetic. It sounded like it was read, written by a female agent. I don't know why I sensed that. but And they spent two and a half years running this kid down. And here's what he did. Uh, Pacheco walked into the foyer of the Capitol, looked around. Six seconds later, he left. Four counts, right? Four charges against him, including rioting, parading, you know, um, it's just pathetic. I multiply that by a thousand. This is the greatest injustice we've seen in our lifetime domestically. And and it goes, you know, it's well beyond that. And it's just, but there's a lot of stories there. And I like to tell stories about people rather than, you know, I mean, I use statistics and facts to back things up. But uh, so in my previous book on masking Obama, I had a commission to write a book on Obama 
I'm tired about Obama. I wrote about the people who broke the stories about Obama, who broke all those scandals open. And they were inevitably, uh, almost inevitably, citizen journalists, a lot of them working without pay, while the mainstream did not break a single major story about Obama in eight years. They all came from the bottom up. So I like heroes. I like to have stories about people who do good things. And uh, so I'm always, you know, looking for, for even stories when I write stories about, uh, you know, troubling events like TWA Flight 800 or the death of Ron Brown. I, I try to find someone who's on the inside fighting to get the truth out and write the story about them. So, for instance, when summer home, I, I have a summer home here in Lake Erie. The woman who lives here during the winter is the woman who found the hole in the top of Ron Brown's head, you know. I collect people like this, you know, in my life. He was a forensic uh, pathologist for U.S. Navy, for the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. And what people don't know is that that revelation cost her and three pathologists their careers for going public with that information. So it's a strange world we live in, but, you know. Jack, what, where's the best place for people to go to keep up with what you are doing and what you're writing? Would it be Facebook or your website? No, I, I mean, they can go to Facebook. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, or Cashill. I have a website. It's Cashill, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. But I'd recommend Facebook is good because it's. Uh, I post all my articles on Facebook. Uh, what I have to do on Facebook, though, I don't know about you, Mark, but I have to post my links in the comments section because if I link, I get shadow banned. Uh, and it, that wasn't truly two years ago, but now it's... And now it's all the time. Even a benign link at Shadow Band. So, uh, and I'm on Twitter also, uh, just Jack Cashel every place. Uh, but uh, now you know, it's you know, which is really refreshing is to talk to someone, who, an interviewer who's read the book and, and knows uh, knows the book, makes her a much more uh, uh, much richer experience. Uh, that, for what it's worth, that's been my experience with Facebook too. Is the shadow banning where I have to post links. In the bot in the comments section, otherwise, uh, almost no one sees it. That's right. I'm waiting for them to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, uh, people, I urge you to get a copy of Untenable: The True Story of White Ethnic Flight from America's Cities by Jack Cashel. It's drawn favorable comparisons with J.D. Vance's best-selling book from a few years ago, Hillbilly Elegy. If you read that, in the way that it looks at an important national issue through a really personal lens, it's a story that you will not find anywhere else on an important topic that too many people have a vested interest in not wanting to talk about. Jack, thanks so much for coming on today at the Right Take Podcast. Hey, Mark, excellent uh, interview. I really enjoyed it. Uh, keep up the good work, okay? Thank you. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Just another reminder to subscribe to the Right Take so that you don't miss any of the great conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It helps a lot, and you will have my eternal gratitude. Thanks, and see you next time. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited. <laughs>